about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. tonight from Psalm 22 and it's on page 543 of the Pew Bibles if you'd like to read along with me. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day and you do not answer, by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregations, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he is not despised or disdained, the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness 
to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Uh, it's great to be with you uh, tonight uh, and to have this opportunity to share with you. Please keep uh, Psalm 22 open. <coughs> In the famous children's story by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where the Pevensey children have gone through the magical wardrobe into the land of Narnia and they're at the home of two talking beavers They're about to be introduced to Aslan, the ruler of the world. And the beavers are explaining to the children what's about to happen. The scene goes a little bit like this. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion... "'Safe?' said Mr. Beaver. "'Who said anything about safe? "'Of course he isn't safe. "'But he's good. "'He's the king, I tell you.'" I chose that quote to begin because I think in the age of Twitter rage, it's easier to believe in talking animals than the possibility that anyone could be unsafe and good at the same time, especially God. We've begun this year together with a series of sermons in which we focus on some issue or question that people have about Christianity. Of course, it may also be a question with which Christians themselves have difficulties, and I think tonight's topic is a good example. We're asking tonight, how can a good God allow evil? It's an age-old question. Not unlike the question of divine sovereignty and human freedom. How do they work together? Our question for tonight is something that affects all of us. Whether we are the victims of evil or caring for those who suffer from it. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging that at the outset there's no simple answer to this question. At least not one that will alleviate all the anger, grief or pain that some of you may justifiably feel. Uh, and certainly not in a 25-minute monologue. I'm aware that a number of uh, our church family carry heavy burdens as a consequence of personal and or natural uh, evils. So before I begin proper, uh, I think we we ought to pray. Please uh, join me uh, as we pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that in the power of your Spirit, you would open our hearts to hear your word to us tonight. Please speak to us of your goodness uh, and strengthen our courage uh, and our trust in that goodness. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the most important thing, I think, to begin with is to understand the goodness of God as the Bible does. In the Bible, God is good because he keeps his promises. It's a simple idea, but like many simple ideas, it has profound consequences. The kind of consequences that challenge us to trust that even though God's faithfulness means that he's good, it also means that his goodness isn't merely safe. 
Now, I think we should rule out two possible approaches to this question about God's goodness, or more accurately, two approaches to God in Western culture that try and make God safe. Though they're quite prominent, they're so monstrous in the way they trivialise personal and natural evil, and so ignorant in their estimation of divinity that they must be denounced, by us at least. The first modern idea of God is technically referred to as deism, but you might have heard of it referred to as the watchmaker God. This is the God who creates the world like one creates a clock, winds it up as a timepiece and then lets it run its course. This deity is either unable or unwilling to involve itself in any further uh, activity for fear that the rules that govern natural order of the cosmos might somehow be violated and all of modern science will disappear in a puff of magic. Instead, we suffer the chances and changes of this fleeting world, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Hamlet called them. We suffer these things with the understanding that it's somehow all for the best and justice, whatever that really is, will be done in the end. Now, perhaps the most obvious question to ask of this view of God, it seems to me, is why on earth we should consider such an incompetent bungler to be good in the first place? This distant and disinterested deity does whatever it wants, save overcome the design flaws of its own making. In this scenario, evil, death and suffering must somehow be part of the clumsy blueprint in which we are merely cogs waiting to see whether the goods might somehow outweigh the bad. This God is safe because it does nothing to challenge our modern scientific rationality. Alternatively, I think the second modern popular view of God's goodness is the God who, well, who is the universe, Gaia or Mother Nature, that wonderful life-enfolding force that's within each one of us and all around us, making sure that life lives and keeps going. Though outwardly attractive to the bourgeois, this hideous strength is also the relentless march of genetic progress, where tiny chemicals rule the fate of all living things. In this universe, for God and the universe really are the same thing, there's no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, but blind, pitiless chance, that is to quote Richard Dawkins. In this universe, goodness is more a matter of reproductive success, and evil is, well, there really isn't such a thing as evil. The failure of living things to reproduce is a necessary consequence of weaker genes giving way to those mutations that have randomly adapted to their environment and successfully reproduced. It's all about sex and death, it's just no Shakespeare where people you know, swap genders or get confused or that sort of thing. Now we humans have learnt to live with this God remarkably well. And Adam Smith's revelation that the market will invisibly adjust the forces of supply and demand mean that our natural preference for self-interest can actually enable us all to thrive together. Of course, there is that nagging doubt that perhaps things are not quite so random, or at least our growing awareness that not all chances for success are the same. Some groups do seem to have a head start or 
privilege uh, is the buzzword. Uh, and who should know better than a middle-aged white male? There is a relatively small chance that this God is safe, provided you live like us and only experience nature in a David Attenborough documentary. 4K, of course. So at the outset, I suggest that in order to have this discussion in a way that enables us both to talk about the goodness of God in a meaningful way and rightly acknowledge the reality of uh, personal and natural evils, we need to be clear on which God we're talking about. Now, we are here uh, dedicated to the God of Scripture and the account of Scripture is that the Christian God is good because he keeps his promises. Now, I chose uh, Psalm 22 for us to look at tonight, not just because it's January and we only ever preach on a psalm in January, but because it so clearly addresses the reality of personal and natural evil on the one hand and the truth about God's goodness in the face of it on the other. We're not immediately told about the context of the poet's suffering, only that he or she groans without rest or relief day and night. What's more, he struggles with the conclusion that in this experience, God must have forsaken him. Look at the first verse, it's right there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, yet I have no rest. Why doesn't God do something about this evil? Why doesn't he make things right or just make it go away? Interestingly, though, on reflection, the poet realises that God has never forsaken his people. Look at verse 4 in the psalm. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. Poet seems to remember that the God to whom he cries is the God who promises and rescues. The God of Israel, a nation of slaves of whom God said, and let me read to you a little excerpt from Exodus chapter 3. God says here, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The poet remembers that God promised to liberate his people from slavery to save them from the evil that is one group of humans exercising domination over another. The whole of the second book of the Bible is about this story of God keeping his promise to liberate the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. In fact, much of the first two-thirds of the Bible revolves around this story and clarifies this fact for us. The Christian God is good because he keeps his promises. Well, whatever happened in the past for others is all well and good, though, isn't it? Perhaps God's goodness is only for some. That seems to be where the prophet's thoughts drift. Look at verse 6. Well, that's what it was like for our fathers, 
But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. Here's the practical evil of evil, the personal experience of it, the feel of it and the smell of it. Whatever goodness God showed to his people in the past, the poet's concerns are very much now, in the moment. And he's left not only with his afflictions, but also with the reactions of those who see him suffering while clinging to his faith. Here is our most naked fear. Isolation in vulnerability as the leering and sneering of others breaks through our Instagram insignia, our Facebook fortress or our Pinterest parade. Why doesn't God do something about betrayal or bullying or abuse? Now here, I think we've reached a point where, in all seriousness, it possibly ought to offer a trigger warning. Because we face an immense challenge to our concept of the goodness of God and probably to our understanding of goodness in general. It's the reason why it's not safe to question God's goodness to begin with. You see, there is a fundamental problem with our common decency view of goodness, especially when we apply it to ourselves. By far the majority of evil that is personally experienced in the world is perpetrated by humans against other humans. By far the majority. If there's not a God, evil doesn't go away. People's lives don't immediately become filled with joy. In fact, our decent, tasteful inner West culture needs to answer a different question. If people are basically good and gradually improving, then why is there still so much evil in the world? The inconvenient truth that we all have to face is that people are not basically good. What's more, when they are better educated and better resourced, well, they simply find more insidious ways of doing evil and more sophisticated ways of excusing it. Why else did we need to have a royal commission into the banking industry? That stalwart of the Yes campaign. How is it that the invisible hand that guides the market extends from the arms of only 15 people who between them own more than the bottom 50% of the world's population put together? Even victims of evil are not beyond becoming perpetrators themselves. From the Jewish men in Auschwitz stealing the hats of young boys to avoid being chosen for the gas chambers because their heads were uh, bare, to mothers who sell their daughters into prostitution to make a living. The bottom line for us is that personal evil is merely a matter of opportunity and power. 
That's certainly the testimony of every professional I've ever spoken to who deals with child abuse and perpetrators. Opportunity and power. And who amongst us can honestly say that they've never caused any other a kind of distress, whether by accident or by design? Now, I've noticed that we like to use the language of brokenness here. We're broken, and we are. But I can't help but thinking sometimes we use that language because it just removes our responsibility a little bit. I couldn't help it. I'm broken, that's why I betrayed that person. But I think, away from here perhaps, we might be prompted to consider that I wanted to. It was him or her or me. I chose to do evil. And I'd probably do it again in a minute. Even when we think of natural evil, have you ever noticed that it's always, almost always the poor who are washed away in floods or buried under earthquakes? And why is that? Could it be that they're forced to live in such dangerous places by the wealthy who buy up all the good land? But again, evil isn't merely the practice of the rich. It seems to be standard procedure in the southern US states during hurricane season for local governments to have to enforce their zero tolerance towards looters policy. Why do people need to gather electrical appliances during storms that invariably wipe out the whole city's power? What sort of justice is being restored there? If we press the good God to do something about evil in the world, the simplest and possibly even the most just solution could simply be to dispose of humans. But if it's not really safe to ask God to do something about bad people, then then what? It's certainly not safe to press God about his goodness because he shows his faithfulness to us in his promises. But more than that, God shows his faithfulness to his promises because he takes evil personally. The Christian God is good because he takes evil personally. See, another way of phrasing our question for today is why doesn't God do something about evil? Now, someone might rightly ask if God is all-powerful but doesn't intervene against evil, isn't he negligent? Well, that's what makes the Christian gospel good news. The gospel that Christians have been sharing together and with others for the last 2,000 years is that God has done something that shows his goodness in the most extraordinary fashion. The Christian God takes evil personally. At Easter time, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ and the reason why we call it Good Friday is because at the cross, God takes responsibility, personal responsibility, for all the evil in the world by suffering under it. 
You see, the other reason why I wanted us to read Psalm 22 today is that it's primarily about the suffering of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want to read to you some snippets from the Gospel accounts next to what we've heard in Psalm 22. So I have Psalm 22 there in front of you, but I want to compare what's written in Psalm 22 with some of the snippets from the Gospel accounts themselves. Here from Matthew 27. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung on that executioner's gibbet, Jesus deliberately quotes Psalm 22, the passage we read earlier this evening. Jesus quotes this poem to give us some insight into his suffering at the cross. See, Jesus himself becomes the God-forsaken one that's mentioned in Psalm 22. So that we can see at Easter time, God takes the evil of the world onto himself. Enter the mockers who ridicule faith in God. It's there in Psalm 22 verse 7. Have a look. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now listen to Matthew 27 again. The chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Enter the wild animals and evildoers, Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me, they pierced my hands and my feet, they divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Mark chapter 15. The whole company of soldiers dressed Jesus in purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. They crucified him and divided his clothing, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. At the cross, the good God takes personal responsibility for the evil that humans do to each other. In fact, for all evil in creation. The one through whom and for whom the world was made, the one in whom all things hold together and in whom all things are to be summed up, out of his amazing goodness, the author of life suffers death at the hands of his own evil creatures. He becomes the focus of of their evil intent. Now, if that were the end of the story, if Jesus dies in a tragic yet noble death at the hands of evil people, if he simply adds his name to the long list of martyrs, well, then evil has triumphed nevertheless, haven't it? But God keeps his promises. So the second part of the Easter story is that God raised Jesus to life again. In Acts chapter 2, God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? Because God had promised to save him. 
Or in Colossians 2, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, the powers of evil in the universe, and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by the risen Christ. God shows his goodness by keeping his promises and taking evil personally so that we may experience goodness personally. For you see, the good God gives hope. God is good because he gives us hope in the face of evil. Now, let's go back to Psalm 22, last time. You may have noticed the poem ends in a much more upbeat vibe. Look at verse 22 of Psalm 22. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear the Lord, praise him. For he has not despised or detested the torment of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. The poet actually rejoices because he hopes in God's vindication. And no one is vindicated like Jesus of Nazareth, who was raised to life again by God. And here's the wonder of Psalm 22. We become the congregation in whose company Jesus praises the good God so that we can be confident that God is good because he keeps his promises to his son. He did not despise him at the cross nor detest the torment of the afflicted one but listened to his cry and raised him from the dead. It's the beginning of the year. We all live with new hopes new resolutions, new aspirations to be a better version of ourselves. This year for sure, right? Now, whether it's to be a little kinder or to live a little greener or to shop a little bit more ethically, all these aspirations depend on our ability to overcome some of the evils within to overcome the little troll who hides behind our carefully curated social media self. But it's already been a long time since New Year's Day, hasn't it? A minute is a very long time in a digital age. And there's only shame for unguarded texts or ill-considered tweets. But in the hands of a good God, there's always hope. Hope for forgiveness from the evils within and hope for deliverance from the evils without. Or as Paul said to the Romans, through Jesus we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also can rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope does not disappoint because God love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In the power of his spirit who brings the dead to life, God gives us hope for a better self, a better community, a better world, without sin, death and especially without evil. If we can leave behind the safety of our modern gods. Well, let me conclude. No doubt some of you will still be thinking, he hasn't really answered the question, if God is good, why does he allow evil? 
What I've suggested is that it's, well, it's an unsafe question to press God on too much because the good God keeps his promises and he takes evil personally. Then evil and every evil becomes an attack on him. Or as Paul said to the Romans, do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. As I suggested earlier, God doesn't do the most obviously just thing about evil. He doesn't simply get rid of evil people. Instead, he offers mercy and the opportunity to be forgiven and transformed. The grace of God in Jesus Christ leaves us to contemplate the one who knew no evil but became evil for us so that we might become the goodness of God. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.